We're going to be in Esther chapter 9 this morning. Esther chapter 9, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Esther 9. If you're using, uh, if you get a little lost on where Esther is, you're going to open up. The easiest way to get there is open up to Psalms and then go to your left. You're going to go past Job, and then Esther is right there. Um, we are going to be finishing up Esther this morning. Um, Esther is this epic historical account of God's direct involvement, his direct sovereignty and control over all things, even in this book that we have mentioned time and time again that he is not mentioned. He's not there. But he is there. He shows up over and over again, which is why we've called this series God Behind the Scenes. And so I hope that as we've studied this book, as we've been in this book for the last 10 weeks or so, that it has encouraged you and challenged you in your own life, in finding the areas and places in which God is at work, even when you might not directly see him at work. I hope that in studying this book, it has revealed and and sparked something in us to say, i got to be paying attention a little bit more. i got to be looking a little bit harder. I said way back when, when we started, and I've repeated it since, that chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai is trying to get Esther to go to the king on behalf of the Jewish people, to tell her, and Mordecai tells her to consider that, you know what, Esther, maybe you are queen. Maybe you are in this position for such a time as this. Maybe God's put all of this together for such a time as this. That maybe all the events of your life, everything that has gone right and gone wrong, has worked together so that you would be queen of Persia, even though you're a Jewish exile, but you would be in this role, in this place, have this ability to go before the king and save your people from this impending threat of extermination. Maybe you are in that spot for such a time as this. This idea that if we see justice, if we see injustice, if we see pain or evil or suffering or hurt in our circles of influence, in our family, in our friends, in our neighbors and school and workplaces, even at the stoplight as we're coming off the expressway, What if you are in that place at that moment for such a time as this? Maybe God put you right there so that you could step into that moment and be the light of the world that God has made you to be. Because if God is as sovereign as we claim him to be, then that means that nothing is by accident. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is just luck. If God is sovereign, then that means every interaction, every conversation, every moment is charged with the opportunity to step into a situation that God has orchestrated from before he said, let there be light. And so what if we begin to see our lives in that way? We begin to see our lives as such a time as this moment. I pray that's something that we cling to and long for long after we are done studying this book of Esther. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in and and finish up Esther this morning. If you're looking for seats, we've got seats down front if somebody's looking for seats. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather, to gather virtually, to gather in person, to be in your presence, to set time aside to enjoy you, to experience you. God, we come, and from a variety of backgrounds, we come with even just a variety of different ways this last week, these last even 12, 10, 24 hours have gone. We have lots of things on our minds, lots of things on our hearts. We are pulled in directions. We are weighed down, Lord, this morning, now, here, in this place. Help us to just enjoy you. 
to hear from you, to set aside those different things that might distract us, that might pull our attention away from you, because you have a word for us this morning. Because if we believe you are as sovereign as you say you are, as the Bible says you are, as we know you to be, then that means we're in this section of Esther this morning, today, for a reason. You have us here. You have something you need to tell each and every one of us. So Lord, help us to have eyes to see and hearts to believe and minds to comprehend and hands and feet to respond to what it is you have for us this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Esther 9. We're going to start in verse 20. Esther 9, starting in verse 20. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had, start, what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return to his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in that matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days would be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of his high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So I have, as we go along, a few different R words to help you if it helps with taking notes or just remembering where we're at. And remember is actually the first one. Remember. In verse 20, Mordecai wrote the events down and sent them to the people. The events of what has taken place over throughout this whole story, but it was specifically what took place on that day where there were two dueling edicts signed and sealed by the king of Persia played out. 
One, allowed any of the Jews' enemies to attack them and annihilate them without any repercussions. The other allowed the Jews to defend themselves to whatever extent they had to also with no repercussions. And the results of all of this was that the Jews were victorious in defeating their enemies to the tune of 75,000 killed. These events were collected and kept and read and reread. And not only those, but the events leading up to it surrounding Haman and Esther and Mordecai and King Ahasuerus. They were read and reread so that they would remember. That they would remember what God had done. Even in the midst of this book, there are summaries within it to remind you of what God has done. We have one even in the passage we read this morning. So, for those of you who haven't been paying attention or if you're just joining us, uh, verse 24 and 25 gives a, a brief summary of what has happened in these last few chapters. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast Pur, that is lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. It's written down, and Mordecai sends it out, and the idea is, remember. Remember what God did. This was a common instruction and practice for the Jewish people. We see in Deuteronomy 6, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all the good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget that the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Solomon writes in Proverbs 3, Do not forget my teachings, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and for years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. We forget. We forget what we did last week. We forget where we put our keys. We forget what we are supposed to be doing. We walk into, okay, I walk into a room and just forget what I was doing there. It's part of the finite, limited brains that we have. In the Old Testament, often when God would speak to his people or he would speak to the prophets, he would often start the conversation by saying, I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery. This was God's shorthand, his way of reminding his people. Before he gave them a new instruction, a new word, a new commandment, he was telling them, remember who I am. Remember what I have done. Remember how I have treated you. Remember what I have done for you. And remember that I love you. My son is three years old, and so often um, he's learning and testing boundaries. And often I have a conversation with him when I tell him either yes or no, whichever one is making him upset. I have to say, Benji, what is dad always trying to do? And he will respond, keep me safe and happy. And I've been pushing that on him with every decision, every time. Dad's always trying to keep you safe and happy and explain why I made the decision, why he can't have just cookies for dinner, why he can't touch the hot stove, why we can't go play out when we need to be going somewhere else. I try and explain to him, I'm trying to keep you safe and happy. I'm trying 
and push that into him over and over again so that he will understand that when I make decisions, even if he doesn't necessarily like or agree with them, he knows I have his best interest at heart. God says, remember, over and over again. Really, the book of Deuteronomy is remember. Remember what you know of me, he tells his people, even if it is limited, even if it is a small amount, even if you just know a little bit about who I am. Remember my character. Remember what I have revealed to you, my actions, and know that I don't change, and know that I am always with you and for you and seeking your best interest. Mordecai writes these things down so that they would be read and remembered. So that going forward for generations, they would remember what God had done. It's that tangible connection that we need sometimes. It's why you see in the Old Testament altars being built in the wilderness. Simple constructions of rocks and wood that would happen to be around the area. They were built as markers. They were built as reminders of something that God had done. Some way in which God had moved in a mighty fashion. They were built so that days or weeks or years or decades later, those altars would be seen by someone and they would ask, what did God do here? And it was an opportunity, opportunity to learn and remember. It's part of why we take communion. It's why we, t- we take communion every week here. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, he said as he's talking about communion, he retells the events of the Last Supper and he says, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus was the master teacher, always using what was around him, always relating his message to his listeners. And as they sat and they celebrated Passover, an entire celebration, an entire dinner, not only calling the Jews to remember what God had done in bringing them out of Egypt and out of slavery, but also, unbeknownst to them at the time, pointing them forward to what Christ was about to do at the cross. As they had this meal and this time was running out, Jesus takes one final opportunity to teach his followers to remember. Teach his followers, here's what's coming, here's what's going to happen. Remember I love you and remember when you get past this weekend, remember what this was about. The institution of communion, the Lord's Supper, it's one of two actions that Jesus told us to continue to do long after he was gone. And it revolves around remembering. Remember his body broken. Remember his blood shed. Remember the grace, mercy, justice of God for us in Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Remember. Now with something major like that, with God himself stepping into humanity, living a perfect life, going to the cross and dying for our sins and raising from the dead, you would think that's not something we have to be told to remember. You would think it would be on the forefront of our brains, on the tips of our tongues, flowing through us in every action, in every decision, in every interaction. But it doesn't. We get distracted. We get forgetful. We get lost. God knew that about us, knows that about us. And so gave us an opportunity, a simple thing like a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice to routinely call us back to his presence and remember his love. Baptism is the other, inner, the other action Jesus told us to continue to do, and it does the same way. In the same way that someone is submerged, we identify with Jesus in the grave, and we raise up symbolically washed clean. If you couldn't tell, we're going to talk about that a little bit later this morning. 
Both of these things do not save us. They're not magic, but they do have a power and an importance in helping us remember and realign ourselves regularly with the grace and mercy of God. Remember. It's part of our Lent plan is to remember how God shows up to us and share that truth with one another so that we can remember how we have seen God move. Using things to help us remember is biblical and helpful. It's why we have begun lighting this candle in the front so that we have this physical reminder that the Holy Spirit is with us, that the Holy Spirit is here in our presence. We are in his presence. A tangible way to help with remembering what God has done. These things are gifts to us. If you want a tangible something that you can start practicing now, you should do what the writers of the Bible did. Right. We see at the end of chapter 9 and verse 32, Queen Esther makes sure that the directions and instructions surrounding Purim were to be recorded, written down, and kept. I encourage you, write down what God has done in your life. Write down those days and moments when you experience the grace and glory of God in a real, meaningful, tangible way so you don't forget because sometimes we think we won't forget. This is too awesome. This is too big. This is too important. We're never going to forget this, but we will. We will let some of the luster and grandeur of the moment fade. Write it down. And go back and look and remember. It's great with your prayers as well. Write your prayers down. Put them on paper as a way to go back and see how God answers prayer and as a way to not forget to pray for certain things because something can feel really big and important. Like, I got to pray for this right now. I got to pray for this for a couple of days. And then sometimes we can get overwhelmed and distracted and lose sight of its importance. Write down your prayers so you keep going back to them. You can even do it online. We got it set up on our website. You can do it on the back, in the back hallway. We got a whole prayer wall set up. Write these things for yourself. Keep a journal for yourself. The number one thing, maybe the only thing at this point that I enjoy about Facebook is the memory section where you can see past posts and past pictures. It gives a chance to go back and see and remember events and things that were important. And you might say, I'm not a writer. Okay, it's not for anybody else. You could write in code, write in shorthand, write in your messy handwriting. It doesn't matter. It's not for anybody else. It's for you. And let me tell you, as a person who used to journal often and is, it's a discipline that I miss and I want to pick back up, but having done it for a long time and having notebooks filled with prayers and thoughts and frustrations and joys and celebrations, it's an encouragement on those dark days to go back and remind myself God has never left. To even see those times and those prayers where I'm pouring my heart out to God and frustrated and angry and then to look back and, say, and remember how God pulled me from those situations. To remember that God has never left and will never leave. Remember what God has done. Second R word I got for you is rejoice. Mordecai wrote these things so that they would remember, and in remembering, they would rejoice. They would celebrate what God had done. They called this festival Purim, after the term Pur, which means to cast lots, which is how Haman determined when to attack the Jewish people. And so Purim was designed to remember and rejoice and celebrate what God had done. They're celebrating, as we see in verse 22, relief from their enemies, sorrow into gladness, mourning into holiday. This is definitely reason to celebrate, reason to rejoice. And part of that celebration, we learn, revolves around the giving of food and gifts and being generous to the poor. I had a friend of mine in college once say to me, 
God made fun. And God likes it when we have fun. God takes celebrations and fun so seriously that if you read the books of Leviticus and Numbers, you will see instructions on how to celebrate certain festivals, certain holidays. And if someone does not party hard to the glory of God, they are to be cut off from the people. God takes celebrating fun, takes celebrating seriously. God wants us to celebrate and rejoice and enjoy him and enjoy having fun. God wants us to party to celebrate and be be merry. And so as you remember who he is and what he has done in and through and for you, rejoice in that, celebrate that, enjoy that. In this instruction here, we see the giving of food is a big part of this celebration. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but, I mean, food is love. In the Old Testament, just to be, just to cook for someone was important. To have a meal with someone was important. To be at the table with someone was the most intimate thing you could possibly do. It's why Jesus was constantly getting in trouble with the Pharisees because he would have dinner with those who the Pharisees deemed as unworthy. But Jesus was constantly teaching us everyone's invited to his table. We also see being generous to the poor as a major element to celebrating this holiday. It's a fun community-based holiday, and in that case, as is the case with most Jewish festivals, It's about community. It's about thinking beyond yourself. Think about how you can care for and benefit others as a reminder of how God cared for and benefited the Jewish people in this account. Rejoice. We talked a few weeks ago about joy and saying that joy should be the marker of the Christian church, that we should be known as a people who can enjoy and rejoice in our faith in God, even when things look bleak even when things look dark and scary because of our knowledge and faith that he is in control of all things at all times. So rejoice. Third R word I have for you is resolve. Verse 27. Verse 27 says, The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fail, should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. The Jews obligated themselves and their offspring. It's repeated again in verse 31. They and their offspring obligated themselves to remembering and rejoicing. To obligate is to be compelled to do something, to be committed to doing something, to be resolved to do something. Resolved among themselves to remember and rejoice. Because they understood what had happened. How God had moved, how God had taken a situation that was so dark, that was so ugly, and brought his light and grace and mercy into it. How he had reversed the course that they were set on. How they were set for destruction and despair and instead found protection and rest. They knew this tangibly. They knew this experientially. They each, as individuals, had seen firsthand what was going to happen to them and how God stepped in and changed their present and changed their future. And after experiencing this, they resolved among themselves to make sure the party wouldn't stop. That it would continue year after year. It wouldn't be something they would do for a few years and then just kind of let it fade away because it got stale, because it was the same old thing every year. No, they were committed to never forgetting what God had done. 
to never stop celebrating what God had done, to pass that along to their children, to their children's children, to generation upon generation. They were obligated to continue passing it forward. I don't know about you, but I hear and think about obligation. We think, I think chore. I think burden. Right? Literally, it's a thing we have to do. We are obligated to go to work. We tend to avoid or not like to put ourselves in situations where we are obligated. And we don't like to make someone else feel obligated either, right? We don't want to make someone else feel burdened, make someone else feel like they have to do, have to do something. One of the things I hear often from people who maybe grew up in church and fell away from church is, Say, you know what, I had to go to church every week. My parents forced me to be in church every week. I don't want to do that to my kids. I don't want to obligate my kids to be in church every week. Obligation is not a bad thing. It means something is important. When we make community life secondary, when we make community life flexible and ignorable, when gathering with God's people on Sunday or investing in community groups, when serving one another becomes arguable, flexible, debatable, what are we teaching our friends and our family who aren't Christians? What are we teaching our kids? When we decide that Sunday is important as long as it doesn't interfere with any other activity, When we decide we'll attend that potluck dinner, that special service, as long as something better doesn't come along. As long as we don't have something else more enjoyable to do. I can't be in church this week. I got guests in town. I don't want them to feel obligated to come. Why not? What's so bad about inviting friends and family to church? I realize I say all of this and we've been meeting in person for like, what, like four weeks? For the bulk of the last calendar year, we've been online. And I know online church, and for those of you who are tuned in, thank you for being tuned in. And I know online church is not the most fun. It has not been easy that this last year has been a struggle and a challenge to continue to see community flourish. But I also know that God's word calls us in Hebrews 10 to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. If you are a Christian, you should have the resolve to not let church be optional for you or your family. Does it have to be Sundays at 10.30? No. Does it have to be CF? No. And I'd say this last year has shown us that it doesn't even necessarily need to be in person. But regardless of the method or the mode of delivery, the gathering of saints, the lifting of prayers, the lifting of praise, the public proclamation of God's word, the encouragement of one another, that cannot be replaced or ignored. If you want to grow in your faith, you cannot set that aside. The people resolve to keep this celebration going for generations, and it has. Just a couple weeks ago, it was the last week of February, was celebration of Purim around the world. I spoke with a friend of mine who's a messianic, uh, who's a messianic Jewish friend of mine, and he just, we just talked about, like, I just wanted to know, like, what is this about? What is this like? Explain, give me the, give me the inside scoop. And he used the words fun and festive over and over. Some have equated Purim to something kind of like Mardi Gras to, 
because of the costumes and the general celebratory tone that Purim is connected to. To celebrate, Jewish people will gather together for the reading of the book of Esther, the whole thing. It doesn't take them 10 weeks to get through it. Crazy. Every time the name of mention, the name of Haman is mentioned, they read through the whole book, and every time the name of, name of Haman is mentioned, all 54 times, people will yell and boo and hiss, and they take things called gregors, these ratchet noisemakers, and they make noise. All of this done to blot out the name of Haman, going back to what God talked about with blotting out the Amalekites. In early days, they would write Haman's name on stones, and they would smash the stones together or write, him on the sole, write his name on the sole of your foot, and you would stomp during the service until his name was literally faded out. During celebrations the night before and the, the second day, kids and adults will dress up in costumes, sometimes as people from the story. So somebody would be Mordecai or Esther or the king. They will wear masks as a nod to Esther masking her true identity. They also deliver food to one another. They bake and cook and bring baskets of food. A staple of this is the hamantashen. It's a cookie. Um, hamantashen literally means Haman's ears. Um, they're these little triangle cookies filled with fruit. They're apparently delicious. And during the holiday, you are expected to go above and beyond in generosity to the poor. It almost kind of has a, like a Christmassy kind of feel to it, doesn't it? 2,000-something years ago, after all the blood had been shed, Mordecai and Esther declare, remember what God did for us, rejoice in what God did for us, and resolve to never let this fall away. And here we are, and it still happens. It is still clung to and celebrated. It is passed from generation to generation. They remember and rejoice in what God did for them, and they resolve to teach that to their kids and to anyone else who joins them. Is that not the heart of what we are called to do as Christians? that we are to share the gospel with our kids, with our friends, with our family, with anyone who would join us. I mean, that, that is the heart of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what we're called to do and continue to do, so that regardless of whether or not Christ, come back, Christ comes back tonight or tomorrow or a hundred years or a thousand years from now, there will be those who will be able to stand and say, I have put my faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is because of my mom or my dad or grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle or neighbor or coworker. It goes back generations. I'm part of this long line. I'm part of this lineage because people resolve to continue to pass along the gospel. It is the resolve of the people of God to continue to declare and live out the gospel that we will continue to see the gospel go forward and see more and more people come to know and believe. But we have to have the resolve to do it. We have to have the resolve to be dedicated to living out the gospel, to not forgetting it, but remembering it and rejoicing in it and resolve to share that with others, not only in the way we act, but actually having the conversation with that family member, that friend, that coworker about the gospel, about the good news that God came to earth to die for our sins so that by putting our faith in him, we would have new life here, now, and in eternity. Final R word I got for you is regard. The book of Esther ends uh, acknowledging the grandeur of Ahasuerus' reign and the high regard that people had for Mordecai. He rose up to second in command. He was great among the Jews and popular with the people, it says. Why was Mordecai so highly regarded? Verse 3 tells us right there at the very end of the book, 
for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all people. He wanted people to experience goodness and peace. Peace is shalom. Not just the absence of war, but the active building up of one another. Not just neutral, but positive. We saw this play out throughout the book of Esther, as you, if you were with us, as he cared for and watched over Esther from afar. As he saved the king from being murdered. As he just served in the role he was appointed to. He was a foreigner. He was an afterthought. The Jews were barely seen as people, and his faithfulness to goodness and peace was seen and experienced by all. He didn't get immediate results or acknowledgement for his actions. It took years for the king to even remember that he had saved his life, but Mordecai was not driven by fame and power and fortune as his foil Haman was. Mordecai was driven by his faithfulness to living where he was and serving as he could to the glory of his God. We are so concerned with making the gospel palatable, acceptable, that we neuter it and try and make it nice. We bend over backwards to try and appease the world. When in actuality, if you truly want the gospel to go forward, if you want the chance to be part of shining the light of the gospel in our words and actions and living it, then we are called to live in light of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are Christians, you have obtained mercy. So be a person who shows mercy. You know the grace of God in sending Jesus to die for your sins. So show grace. You, Christian, who continue to experience grace every time you fall short, every time you sin and you confess your sins and God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, show grace again and again and again. You who have experienced the love of God when you were unlovable, be a person who shows love. You who were taken from rebel and enemy of God to daughter or son of God, who now experiences the peace of God, show peace. Live in light of the gospel. Be a person. Let us as a people be driven and known, not for what we are against all of the time and what we're angry about all the time, but what we are for and what we love and what we cherish. The good news that God made us and knows us and loves us so much, he sent his son to die for us. The grace and mercy offered to us through Jesus at the cross, the new life that is not only waiting for, for us when Christ returns, but the new life that we experience in the here and now, the abundant life, the overflowing life that Jesus calls us to. If we were people driven by and living in light of the gospel, seeking the welfare and peace of our cities, our regard will grow. And bring us an opportunity to see the gospel go forward, to be part of God's story and redeeming all things back to himself. But we got to do it like Mordecai did it, because you see, Mordecai became second in command, and it doesn't change him. Instead, he uses his position and his opportunity for good, not his good, not trying to make a big deal of himself. No, it's not his good and his welfare, but the shalom of others around him. He's second in command of all of Persia, not just over the Jewish people, all of Persia. And even as he grew and became highly regarded, he was driven by seeking the welfare of others and their peace. May we be a people who do likewise, so that the name of Jesus would be lifted and exalted and others would find the goodness of God and the peace that comes from being in a right relationship with him based not on us, but on, based on our faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus.
Brothers and sisters, remember what God has done for you. Rejoice in what God has done for you. Resolve in knowing God deeper and deeper still. And as you do that and you gain the regard of others, use that to be the light of the world that God has made you to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, for this opportunity to gather God, we thank you for the technological advances that make it so we can even do this virtually. God, we thank you for this book of Esther, this something so different in the Bible. In a book where you're not even named, your fingerprints are all over the place. You're constantly revealing yourself to us through your word and through the actions of this world around us, Lord. Help us, give us the hearts and minds and intentionality to be paying attention to what you are doing in our world. God, we are forgetful people. We lose sight and we just ignore what it is you have done for us, how you have moved in our lives, how you have shaped and cultivated all things for your glory and our good. God, help us to never forget. Help us to never lose sight of the gospel. Help us to re-remember it, rediscover it every day. God, I pray that we would grow closer to you, that we would enjoy you and enjoy this world, this life that you have given to us. And as we do these things, that we would have opportunities to share that good news that you have given to us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning, anyone who hears this right now, God, I pray that this would be the moment. Today would be the day where you break down whatever walls and barriers they might have, Lord, that you and your Holy Spirit would do what you, only you can do and change hearts of stone, soften hearts to the good news that God is for us and not against us. That you sent your Son to die for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be lifted up in the way that we live as we go out to be the lights of the world you have made us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.